Are you conscious of your addiction? Refuse to be defined by it? Not satisfied with living your life on the surface? Are you drawn to deeper meaning and purpose? And believe that it's possible to grow through your addiction to experience true freedom? Well, welcome home. Share the journey from addiction to freedom with your host, Michael Gregory. So today I have a really special guest. It's J.F. Benoist, and um, I won't tell you too much about him because I introduce him when we begin speaking. But from our conversation, I think you're going to find it really interesting and more than that useful in learning how, in a way, a lot of our addictions and lack of freedom is really coming from, I guess, pre-programmed ways of operating, which he calls the monkey mind. And JF really lays out a way of becoming free from that and actually having real choice about how we respond. And that really starts with taking notice of the body. Becoming aware of act of the body and the feelings in the body is kind of like a, a portal into understanding what our deeper motivations are or perhaps some of our mistaken beliefs about a situation or ourselves, which can actually cause us to react in ways that really aren't appropriate to the situation and cause suffering in our life for ourselves and others. So he's suggesting you start with the body, become aware of that. And in, in that process, he calls it the observing mind. So, and by strengthening and developing this ability to work with the observing mind, actually develop a real freedom where you get to accept yourself, you get to see the truth of yourself, you get to see, actually be present for others and not resist or hide or be victim to feelings of shame or guilt and fear. And in this way, really develop, it's a really kind of, I guess, step-by-step way to develop more freedom in your life. And I guess a richer life because you become more open to the richness of what's already present within yourself and and, and around us. So I really recommend that you take the time to listen to this whole episode. And within it, he actually gives an an example of an exercise that you can actually do and experience the reality of what, what he's talking about. So with that, I will let you get into the episode. Welcome to another episode of From Addiction to Freedom. I have with me here a very special guest, Francois Benoist, uh, known as uh, JJF. He's been a long-time practitioner helping people with addiction, and he's actually established a methodology called experiential engagement therapy. So we might hear a little bit about that. He's also written a book which has sold over 26,000 copies called Addiction to the Monkey Mind. And uh, he runs an exclusive retreat for recovery in Hawaii called the Exclusive Hawaii. So welcome, JF, and thank you for being here and taking the time. Thank you for having me, Michael. This is wonderful. So I've actually, I think I mentioned, I've actually pretty much finished your book. I think I've just got maybe a little bit more of the last chapter to go. And I really enjoyed how you wove in the stories of people along the way, as you explained how you work. Mm -hmm. So that made it much more kind of enjoyable to read. But one of the central concepts is at the title of the book, you know, Addiction to the Monkey Mind. So I really want to get into that. But before we do that, could you just share a little bit about where did you start off? How did you end up as an addiction practitioner, I guess? I mean, you must have have your own journey. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I'm the first one in, in my family on my father's side to really break the cycle. You know, we, my great-grandfather, my grandfather, my father was an alcoholic, and there was a long battle for all of us. And I actually started drinking when I was probably about 13 years old. And so I abused it very, very young till about 27. But I was heavily, just on a daily basis, heavily abusing alcohol. I started doing a lot of drugs and different things. And I think what opened the door for me is early on, I started discovering that there was some deeper issue within me in terms of the anxiety that I grew up with in my family setting. And a lot of things that I, at the time, couldn't quite understand. But you know, I really believe that most addictive behaviors are 
an attempt to, you know, they're an act of self-love. You know, they're an attempt to take care of ourselves and to soothe our nervous system. And most of us don't realize the depth of what's really igniting those urges to abuse substance. Right, right. That really resonates with my background as a Chinese medicine practitioner where imbalance is really seen as the best attempt to remain functioning and in contact with life in a way. Mm -hmm. And so it maybe is not the best balance, but it's the best attempt at being present. And um, back to your story, the early on you, you started drinking and alcohol and you had that the family history of that. And so how did it, what happened after that? Well, I was introduced when I was very young. There was an organization. It was a derivative of EST. I don't know if you've ever heard of EST. In in the 70s, it was a very big movement into personal growth. And I was babysitting this little boy and this mother kept coming home with this really lightness of being. And so she introduced me to this organization. And very early on, I developed an interest to help others and to help myself and to try to figure it out. Unfortunately, at that time, it didn't stick because I was so young. You know, I was like 15 or 16. But there was already a huge interest in helping others and helping myself. And then I was fortunate later on to be introduced to some amazing mentors that really introduced me to the deeper root cause of the issue. And I started really healing and it changed my life. And then I wanted to help others, you know, so I'd naturally follow the path that provided me with training to be able to help others. Yeah, wow. So you really are walking the talk in a way. You know what it's like to to come from a, a challenging background and try to solve that with addiction and then you've actually solved it with, a, I guess, a more healthy approach. So what what would you say that approach is? I mean, I know you, you call your book is called Addiction to the Monkey Mind. So is that central to to your way of working? Absolutely. I I think most of us don't realize that there is a conditioned and programmed way of thinking that exists within our nervous system. You know, one of the things I see in the last 10 years of helping people is, you know, they come in and they say, I don't understand. I've been in therapy for five years, or I've been to meetings forever and I still can't stop, or I've been to three programs and I still can't stop. And we immediately explain to them, look, it's, it's kind of like, You could never learn to ride a bicycle by talking about it, right? You just, at some point, you have to learn some context and some information about it, how the brake works and all that. But at some point, you got to get on and start riding it. So imagine that for most of us that are stuck in an addictive behavior, we have an aversion to being connected to our bodies because in the body exists all this program and conditioned way of thinking that just repeats itself, that produces more and more anxiety. So we're trying to take care of ourselves by avoiding the major feelings that are rising up. We're we're trying to avoid all the discomfort. And that's the equivalent of refusing to get on the bicycle. And so that's the main issue is that cognitive behavioral therapy, which is basically in a way, it's, it's an analytical way to understanding your problems, is not enough. It's not enough for us to create the change that we need. So we have to begin to, one of the things that I teach is, I call it the language of the nervous system, because what it is, is that the body, you know, this principle is based on the most updated technology. It's called experience-dependent neuroplasticity. And what that means is that the way the pattern of thought fires in the brain, I'm talking specifically about mental health here, is that pattern of thought was created by repetitive experiences. So if we want to create change, we have to be able to learn skills to navigate one of those fight or flight moment, one of those triggered moments, and then create a different outcome. And when we have an experience of that, we're able to then have a different way of seeing things, a different way to see ourselves. And that's really where the change can occur. Right. So if I can kind of see if I can backtrack to what you said in the beginning, just for a moment, because I you said a whole lot of things, and I think it, you know, there's a lot in there, and so I, I just want to sit here for a minute. So you mentioned that we're trying to avoid the feelings in our body. 
Is that right? And yep. and the and, and the addiction is part of that avoidance strategy. Correct. Because those feelings are uncomfortable. That's right. And you also mentioned that in a way you mentioned the body and thinking and are you talking about that feelings embody thoughts or beliefs or is it more talking about just the interaction of the mind and the body? Yeah, so exactly. The relationship between the mind and the body is extremely important. But here's what happens is very early on, if you look at one of the conditioning that happens to all of us is we start learning to judge emotions. You know, when you get angry, people don't like it. Or when you're crying or when you're nervous, we don't want those emotions. So we start labeling those things. Like think of most people when they have an emotion, the response of their friends or their family members will be, what's wrong? It's, that's very telling, right? It's kind of like, what, what do you mean what's wrong? It's like, oh, it's wrong to have an emotion. It's wrong to have this feeling. And it's just the feeling never gets seen and never get heard and never get felt. And so we revert back to trying to use our analytical mind to trying to fix things analytically, but at the nervous system level, it never gets resolved. So if you look at children, when we're very young, we have this ability to feel our emotions and they get, we, we pass through them constantly. You watch a five-year-old, they go from mad to glad to sad, back to glad in less than five minutes. Well, they don't have any judgments about their emotions. They are fluid. They don't have preconditioned or programmed way of thinking that just keeps insisting that we should repress all these uncomfortable feelings. So it's a form of intelligence we possess initially that then we basically get dumbed down as we grow older because we learn to judge the way we feel. Right. So it's in the interaction with others and how the others reflect back to us, whether they approve or disapprove of those feelings, that we start to develop strategies to avoid them. Is, it, is that right? Exactly. They become coping mechanism and they're, they get ingrained because they're repeated over, over many years they just, they get repeated and repeated. And so your body thinks that that's the way to keep you safe. And your body is doing the thinking for you. You can try all you want to say positive affirmation over the top of it, but your body won't believe it. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned fight or flight. And do you want to talk a little bit about how fight or flight plays into that? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the greatest things that I discovered that I think it's, it could be very, very freeing when you really understand this principle, right? So imagine that the fight or flight response is much more accurate to think in terms of back in the caveman. When you had to fight or flight is when there was a tiger in the bush, right? So either you fight or you fly. But the real issue is that what's happened over the years, okay, is that very, very seldom is our life in danger. For some, yes, that does happen. For most, it's pretty rare. Your life is really not in danger right at this moment. And talking about physical danger, not talking about emotional. So there's a confusion that's happened at the nervous system where we've been conditioned to sort of confuse physical safety with emotional safety. And because we confuse that, what starts happening is when we are triggered, we don't understand that the tiger has been replaced by a lack of self-worth. And this is extremely freeing when you realize this. For example, you know, take a comment of like you have a couple and one of the partners says to the other one, you know, why didn't you do the dishes? And immediately, oftentimes the person just from that can get backed up and say, well, I've worked hard all day. I've been doing so many different things. But why are those dynamic existing? And the person is like, triggered as if it was a life-threatening situation when it's not, it was a question about the dishes. So what we don't realize is that we constantly are having an experience at the nervous system that's not logical, right? You can never use logic for this, that somehow we feel like our sense of well-being is being threatened. Somehow we're not enough. We didn't do it right. There's something wrong with us. And these kind of triggers happen so fast that most people are completely unconscious of them. And so that's really what's triggering the fight or flight response is that most people don't have an awareness that at the nervous system level, it feels like your life is being threatened. Right. So in the beginning, it was a physical danger to our existence. Yes. Fight or flight came in to help us survive. 
and now it's been translated over into an emotional danger. Absolutely. Or a feeling, an uncomfortable feeling is perceived as a danger by the, I guess, the hindbrain and then the fight or flight reaction, the defensiveness or blaming someone else or trying to, def- that kind of behaviour comes in. Is it? So, and, and what you're saying is that these feelings are not really a danger. That's correct. They absolutely, there's nothing dangerous about our emotions. It's the opposite. Emotion possess, it's the highest form of intelligence. So meaning that belief system, okay, create emotion, but emotion are easier to track than beliefs because beliefs are made out of thoughts and we have so many thoughts in a day, we can get confused with how much thinking we're generating in a day. But emotions are very basic. It's like mad, glad, sad, fear, shame. Those are the basic emotion. And so if you can notice and develop an awareness and more specifically, develop skills to breathe into the emotion, right? One of the things that we teach is a circular breath. And that way of breathing is about allowing the experience to unfold without judging it, without fixing anything. Just learning that skills can be very freeing because once you develop this ability, then you can actually use some minimum inquiry to ask yourself, what is really triggering this emotion? And then that's where you get to the beliefs that are survival ways of thinking, right? Thinking that your life is being somehow that you're not enough or I'm not enough. And so it requires presence to the body first. Right. So you start with becoming aware of the feeling and allowing that feeling. And then, and in a way that interrupts the fight or flight reaction. That's correct. And most people fail right there. Yeah, because then they get too caught up in thinking. That's right. They revert yeah. back to thinking very rapidly. Yeah, yeah. So maybe at this point it might be useful to talk about the monkey mind and how you've you know, described that and then made use of that concept. Yeah, it was really fun writing the book because we one of the things I discovered through ten the last decade of working with people with all kinds of severe addictions and is to come to that we're all stuck in the same way. And even people who don't have an addiction, I believe the real issue, and that's why we call the book Addicted to the Monkey Mind, is that we're addicted to those survival ways of thinking. And so it's we're addicted to it because that's the only thing we know how to keep ourselves safe. But it doesn't really work, you know? So for example, in the book, I give many examples, like Kevin, you follow Kevin and Elizabeth, And Kevin is raised in such a way, it's a very cliche way for a lot of men, but it's really true, where his father, basically, every time he cries, he tells him, don't be a sissy, just rub some dirt on it. Why can't you be more like your brother? And so over time, what happens is the condition and the survival way for Kevin is to repress when he's feeling sad, right? Because that keeps him safe with his dad. But then if you look at, so years and years and years of repressing his sadness because it's seen as weakness, the body starts to believe that very message, right? That crying and having emotion and grief is is not safe. And so later on, when he's in a relationship with Jamie, you know, he can't show emotion. He gets a phone call from his mother and his favorite uncle just died and he starts tearing up and his wife comes close to him and said, oh, honey, I know this was, you know, the person you were the closest to in your life. And he stands up from the couch and just kind of pushes her away. And she looks at him in total disarray and says, you know, I I can't do this anymore. And so the very thing that protected him for most of his life is now sabotaging the way he's living because he has no intimacy in his relationship, right? Because the ability to feel and to connect with our feelings is what gives us the ability to have intimacy. So this is a very simple way. It's, it's, a, it's a very traditional sort of type of program and condition way that happens. But there are so many different variations that most people are unaware of what that program monkey mind that we call is doing to them. And a great example is I start in the introduction of the book, I say, you know, Every time that I've asked somebody, why do you drink? The majority of the time they'll say, well, I just drink in social settings to take the edge off. And I raise the question and ask, 
Have you ever stopped for a second and asking yourself, what edge are you talking about? There's an edge, and what is it? Well, this edge is the monkey mind, meaning that the person is not conscious, that they have a program way of thinking that's repressing who they are, and it produces so much stress that as soon as they, they are in situation where they, that could be aggravated or poked at, kind of like poking the bear that's dormant in each of us, and then we need a drink to cope with it. Right. So let's just unpack a little further how addictive behaviors come into this situation. So this situation has evolved because of children and people as they're growing up are trying to remain safe. And so this strategy of working with fight or flight, which you're describing as the monkey mind evolves. So how does addiction come in as a potential solution for that? Even if it's not the best solution, how does that work? Well, the strategy that we learn very early on is we live in a shame-based and fear-based society. And very early on, most of us use shame as a motivator to change ourselves. So it doesn't matter what you're trying to do in your life. There's an undertone. You know, if you ask people, let's say you work for someone and there's a meeting and they're giving you a review about your work. And they tell you 20 great things that you did. And then one person points out one bad thing or one thing that, you know, you weren't up to par. The person will leave the meeting and all that they can think about is that one thing, right? That one thing that they were not up to par. So we have a bias because we believe that if we judge ourselves, it's going to motivate us to change. It's going to motivate us to be better, to do it differently, to improve ourselves. But what actually happens at the nervous system is every time we judge ourselves, it produces an enormous amount of anxiety. And this is where addictive behavior is born because we cannot sustain this amount of anxiety without getting relief. Nobody is ever bad for abusing drugs or alcohol. And some of us have received a type of programming that is extremely damaging. Like I'll give you some example. There's a lot of program way of operating that is about a sense of belonging that the person never, ever gets to feel like they belong. And this is someone that might be raised in a family where they were rejected, where the parents weren't there, they weren't present. They might have been told you were a mistake. Uh, it could be adopted children uh, that felt rejected. So there's a core experience at the nervous system where it was constantly fed, you're not wanted here. You're not welcome here. And so that can get triggered very rapidly. And we see this in addiction. I would say the, the lack of belonging is something that never gets addressed, ever. It just, it gets triggered. And this is the root cause of addiction because alcohol is just a way, or drug, it's just a way to bring relief. That's really what it's about. And if we find other ways to address the source that's creating the anxiety, then we don't have to resort to alcohol or drugs anymore. Right. So, so you, are you saying that belonging is a key source of pain or, or danger that the, the fight or flight has a reaction to, and then alcohol become kind of, or, or other drugs can be a kind of a relief from that experience of, of isolation, I guess? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there is, you see, at the core, they are primary ways. Imagine that to the nervous system, mental health is the connection to your nervous system. If you want good mental health, you need a strong connection with your body. And most people don't know that. Brunny Brown did a decade of research and she found that the people who are happiest in life have a high capacity for discomfort. So that means that they're not afraid of their emotions. They're not afraid of they know that life has ups and downs, and they're able to navigate it and welcome those experiences. And so for a lot of us, it's missing because nobody ever taught us that we're strong enough, that we don't need shame, that we don't need fear, that we can actually work through the experience itself and constantly improve ourselves through that process of experiencing life, right? So there are four primary ways that to the nervous system, uh, those Four level. It's kind of like think the body needs food and water to survive. Well, to mental health, we all need to feel a sense of belonging. 
And if we don't experience that at the nervous system, then our body is in a state of aggravation. We also need to be seen. If you watch children, it's very, very clear that being seen is, is a wonderful thing. And it's not about, it's not about being self-centered. It's about, I'll give you an example. I was hiking up the hill. I live in Hawaii and there's these gorgeous hills and I love doing these strong power walks. And I'm power walking and this hill is really steep and I'm, I'm coming down this hill and there's a local man in his truck and he rolls down the window and he looks at me and he says, have you been power walking this whole hill? And I go, yeah. And he goes, oh, you're an animal. And he gives me a big smile, you know? And in that moment, I'm looking at him and I could feel my whole nervous system was in ecstasy. You know, why? Because I was being seen. And it's not self-centered. It's, you know, think of it. If you go to the grocery store and the cashier looks at you and said, that's a beautiful sweater you're wearing. It just brings so much color. Or It doesn't matter what it is, but being seen changes our experience at the nervous system. So belonging, being seen. Another one that's extremely important is a sense that your life matters, that you make an impact and a difference in other people's life. And another one is connection with nature, being out there in nature and experiencing your body being present in nature. So those are oftentimes, they're, they're things that most people in, a, in addictive behaviors don't realize how they're starving in those four primary ways. So would you say that these four ways are really healing for people? It's so healing that when you begin to make sure that this gets addressed, it's, it makes the addictive behavior look sort of silly. It really does. Because you notice that those are such powerful ways to fulfill a sense of well-being that alcohol is actually doesn't do that. No. No, it kind of takes you away from those things, really, doesn't it? It does. It, it numbs you out and it brings you into more shame as soon as you sober up. Yeah. So how does, you, you mentioned in your book about the observing mind. Mm-hmm. So how does this work in this setting where you've got these, in a way, less aware fight or flight responses going on? We've got an addictive, addictive behaviours trying to, to make all that feel okay, what role does the the observing mind have in all of this? So once we can learn that these primary ways are essential to our well-being, we can develop more of a witness instead of a fix-it mindset. So the observing mind is a way to witness yourself. And that's really what it is. And witnessing requires us to have the experience, not trying to fix the experience, change it, or any of that. By witnessing, it's amazing the amount of information that we have access to. You know, to give you an example, I've developed such a strong relationship with my observer, right, with my observing mind, that I very rapidly speak the language in the nervous system. So my wife might ask me three questions. By the time she hits the third question, I'll say, you know, I am noticing that I'm really scared right now. So I'm on the phone. I'm just talking to her. And she goes, oh. And I said, yeah. I said, that's where I'm at right now. So notice, that's a function of the observing mind. I, instead of reacting in that moment, I'm a step back. So the observing mind is always just, it's like you're allowing the experience to take place. And therefore, that leaves space for you to witness and then report, right? A witnessing and reporting back to yourself. Oh, this is what's going on in the body. Now, from that place, the observing mind can be curious, can develop like truly, it's a simple curiosity. Where is this anxiety come from? And what, once you develop this understanding that you can connect it to, oh, it's some kind of lack of self-worth that's being, you know, somehow triggered, which is pretty much you can count on it that it's some form of it. And so when I breathe now into this witnessing, right, I can even report further and then say to my wife, oh, 
I'm noticing that the fear comes out of this mind that's telling me I'm not enough. I didn't do enough today, or I'm not enough for you. Okay. And it's not logical. And that's the thing where most of us are stuck because we use the analytical mind to tell ourselves the story that we shouldn't have those primary feelings and that it's too vulnerable to even admit to yourself that you feel like you're not enough. It's we're so stuck in that and it's very detrimental. And the opposite is true, meaning that every time I speak the language of the nervous system with my witness observing mind, I'm immediately connected. You know, then I'll even verify it. I'll say to my wife, it's, is that what's going on for you? you? Are you thinking I'm not enough? And, you know, sometimes we burst out laughing and she'll say, <laughs> I don't even know where that comes from. And I That's go, yeah, right. yeah, I know where that comes from, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So when you mentioned that, the way that you shared that example, I mean, you became very vulnerable and vulnerability can be experienced as a scary place. So on the one hand, you know, you've got the fight or flight reaction feeling maybe I'm not enough and that's uncomfortable, but then you've used your observing mind to observe that and then you've taken a step further and you've actually shared that with your wife and, and become vulnerable, which could be like some, I could imagine that some people wouldn't be able to take that step because that's another that could trigger more fight or flight. So they'd try and hide that feeling of I'm not enough. That's, that's correct. How do you get to this level where and how do you handle this vulnerability? Well, here's the thing. You have to start in the relationships that you feel safe enough to build enough self-confidence within yourself to realize that every time you witness yourself, every time you expose something about yourself, that you connect with a core belief that's driving your bus. And when you're able to verify the validity of that, you experience tremendous relief. So let me give you an example. Once you learn about your main program way of operating, you start noticing the insanity of it, meaning it just repeats itself, right? So my one of my main programming is related to Having anxiety as a belief that that makes me a, a responsible man. So the way I was raised is, you know, my mother was often anxious when I was growing up and she would just express a ton of anxiety. And she would also say that men were very selfish because my dad had left when I was five and he never took care of anything, right? No, he was missing in action. And so for her, she painted the picture that men are just thinking of having fun, they're irresponsible, and they don't have stress. So therefore, my nervous system over a period of time develops the belief that if I want to be responsible, if I want to pay my bills, if I want to take care of my family, if I want to, whatever, it doesn't matter, build a business or whatever it is I need to do, I'm going to need to be stressed out. So can you imagine if that, all of those program way of thinking are dormant in most of us, but they're driving your behavior, right? And so we think that it's safer to pretend, oh, I'm not going to be vulnerable and I'm not going to admit to myself that I'm anxious because I believe that somehow I need to be more than I am now. I'm not quite enough. I need to be more responsible and the way to, you know, so somehow there's a belief behind this. I did something wrong. I'm not responsible enough. So that anxiety kicks in as saying, okay, come on, JF, be more responsible, be more responsible. Well, the more anxious I get, the more I want to drink because it's just like, what do you mean? I'll never be responsible enough. But when you develop this witnessing and this observing, something happens where you can now connect with the truth of it. The truth is that every time I started witnessing myself, I used to do this, was, was really amazing. I started power walking around my house. We lived out in the country and I would just go out every time I felt anxious and I would just power walk around the house. And I would just bring myself into my body and start observing what's going on, what's going on. I'm anxious, I'm anxious. Why are you anxious? Like be curious and just witnessing, witnessing. Oh, and over time I just connected and every single time it was connected to 
a sense of not being enough, a sense that that's going to make me responsible. And then I could just slow down and say, well, wait a second. Is being anxious, does it put more money in my bank account right now? No. Is it helping me connect with my partner better? No, it actually does the opposite. Does it, you know, so as you start verifying with this witnessing mind, you start realizing that experientially you feel it in your body, that it's not producing the promise of it, right? So there's a promise in the conditioning and program mind that that monkey mind, it's like unconsciously promise you a better life, right? But it never delivers. And what you need is a witness to see that, to experience it. And then it's easy to kind of say, okay, well, you know what, right now, it's not really helping. So I'm just going to decide to put anxiety down and I'm going to go enjoy my meal with my family. So it loses its power. When you see the truth of it, it loses the grip on you. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. And, and yeah. you learn to feel safer over time by being able to expose it. Like I started exposing to my wife because I felt safe with her. And I started telling her that my program monkey mind was telling me that anxiety was going to help me. And she said, well, it doesn't help you because when you're anxious, you don't hear what I'm saying and you don't hear yeah. what your children are saying. And, and she could see it, you know, so it's like, it's like building an ally and say, okay, so what we're going to do is when I get anxious, I'll tell you, we'll start, you know, communicating. I'll open up to you and say, hey, I'm there again. I'm thinking I'm not enough. What, what are your thoughts? It's a magical experience to be vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. What, what's, uh, what's kind of coming to my mind at the moment listening to you is that, is that it's, it's, it's like that you have this identity as the monkey mind and those behaviours, like being anxious is good and helps me be a better man and, and underlying that is that I'm not enough and to be enough I need to be on the job and anxious. And so that that identity is like seeing that that's the I guess taken for granted that's me, and then you bring in the observing mind. The observing mind observes all of that happening, and in the process of observing that, in a way to observe something, you've got to well, you're not that thing because you're <laughs> observing that thing, you know. And so maybe, and this is kind of a question here: Do you think that? that you can actually become vulnerable because what you're reporting is not you anymore. You're reporting what was a false belief about you, therefore that isn't you, and the me that's reporting is actually quite different and, and in a way freer, more present, all the we're able to hear, not anxious, all those things. So maybe that's the way that you're able to be so vulnerable because, because what you're reporting actually is seen as not true now. And, and it's, it's, you know what's amazing is that we don't understand that it's the experience that brings the free feeling, the experience. Because here's what's happened. The mind is addicted to believe that shame will deliver a better you. Shame and fear will deliver a better you. And so if you cut off the experience of the body, you don't have the experience of the shame and the fear. So therefore, you don't really know whether it's delivering the promise it says it's delivering. So the more you identify with your mind. It's like you're flying blind. You totally are. And, and it's, it's, it's shocking because there's such an aversion to having this experience in the body because it's uncomfortable initially. And, but the experience itself will give you the verification of the absurdity of that mind, of that monkey mind. It'll show you that it's completely false. Like not, not a small amount. It's like 100% false. And here's the thing. It did, at some point, it was effective at keeping you safe. Like the example with Kevin, right? It kept himself, he kept himself safe with his dad, not being reprimanded by repressing his emotion. But that changes, right? When you become an adult, that's no longer the same. You don't need those protective ways of being because it, it doesn't work. They were only there to cope with the situation. Yeah. So initially it, it kept him safe with his dad, but it actually 
as a consequence, turned off a whole lot of other abilities, which were really needed in his adult life. Yeah. Yeah. It's strange how we're cut off. The very core of our experience is where we are the safest, right? It's just right there. And, and when you have grief, it's okay to have grief. And think of it, it's kind of like one of the things I teach people to do, especially in close relationship, is to have start building a relationship. I call it the weather report, right? And I have this little exercise I've done with people, and the ones that really abide by, by this little way of you know ritual to do every day, they report back and say, wow, this is life transforming. I go, yeah, it's so easy. And here's what it is. You take five minutes, you have to time yourself with, 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 with your phone, and the first person, so you, you do this with someone you feel close to, it could be your partner, it could be a family member, and you each have five minutes, and in that five minutes, one person listens and absolutely does not interrupt whatsoever, so that person, in a way, acts like an observer, okay, a witness, okay, and you get to share how you feel. And you have to focus on trying to the best of your ability to use I statements to talk about yourself, not other people, and just say, I'm nervous, I'm scared about this, I'm sad about this, I'm happy about this. I'm, you know, and you have five minutes. And so it's like laser sharp, give it your best shot to share with this person how you feel. Now, at the end of it, the five minutes, the buzzer goes off and the person that was talking says, thank you so much for hearing me. And the other person says, you're welcome. Then you switch. The other person gets five minutes. You listen. At the end, same thing. You close it by saying, thank you for hearing me out. You're welcome. And now the most important part is that you each walk away. You do not get into a conversation. You do not stay together. You, you have to take yourself and go do something else, like go do the dishes or go somewhere else and you have an understanding in this relationship that this is training your body, that it's safe just to be heard, just to be seen, just to be felt. And it's not about fixing anything. It's not about receiving advice. It's not about changing. And if you do this long enough, I guarantee you, anyone that does this long enough, within definitely 10, 20 days, you're going to start experiencing a sense of safety within yourself that you didn't have before. It's life transforming. And again, remember, this is very experiential, right? It's not logical. It's reporting your experience to someone else. So is this strengthening your ability to exercise the observing mind? Correct. And it's so helpful to do it live with somebody else. Because oftentimes at the beginning, this is really hard to do for ourselves right? So as I'm talking, I have the freedom in that five minutes to express myself in all sorts of ways. And I can sort of like notice that I'm being seen by somebody else. And just that in itself starts bringing a different awareness of me, right? Me feeling safe, sharing my experience. And the body can feel that. Yeah. So if, if I was to try and maybe simplistically try and summarize just for people listening, so what you're, what you're suggesting is, is that we need to be, be more aware of our feelings and we start with our feelings because our feelings give us access to the underlying kind of monkey mind programming and then by observing those feelings, they're not so controlling of us and then we're able to then bring in, once we're comfortable with that, a little bit more, I guess, questioning of whether that, those feelings, I mean, the, the underlying beliefs of those feelings, whether they're true. That's correct. The first step that you're describing is so important. That's the hardest for most of us. So you have to be very careful. The ability to just have the experience and not start laying some advice or fixing or changing. And then the second part is to naturally want to be curious about yourself. That's the opposite of shame, right? So being curious is like, Oh, I'm interested. I want to know where does this feeling come from? Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. So really allow more awareness to come up about what is this feeling? What is it related to? 
and, and I guess so you're trying to uncover the underlying beliefs that are operating without your awareness when there's feelings there. I was thinking by doing that, you're you're then in a sense taking away the power that perhaps you would normally use an addictive behaviour to come and dull and plaster over all of that discomfort, that feeling. Is that right? The more you develop this ability, the less urges you have to want to abuse anything because your nervous system feels safe. It's mm. Addiction is not more complicated than that. It's as simple as being aware that your body doesn't feel safe. Not your mind, your body does not feel safe. Yeah. You know, the fight or flight response comes from the non-thinking part of the brain, doesn't it? You know, the, the, what we call the reptilian brain. And it's very connected with, with the body, isn't it? And it Absolutely. generates urgency, you know, which is anxiety and fear to take action, which is either run away from the danger, repress it, or fight it to destroy it, which is, turns into fighting people or running away from people or ourselves. Yeah. So you're saying that the body is, is the starting point. The body is the big clue to have access and, and following that, those feelings and becoming aware of those and becoming curious of what the beliefs and the, you know, what we believe about ourselves and then we can actually become aware of whether that's true or not and then actually transform and be, have a new view of ourselves according to what really is happening. We have a distorted view of ourselves, and it's very detrimental. Most people, I'll give you an example. We have this experiential, through the experiential engagement therapy that I've developed, everything we do is focused on having an experience. So I'll give you an example. We'll have somebody come and stand in front of the group, and we will ask that person, tell us, all the major things in your life that you've overcome or the things you've accomplished in your life. And so the person might say, you know, when I was 30, I got on a boat with one friend. It was a, a 37 you know, foot sailing boat and we crossed the Atlantic together. And then we say, okay, so what quality did you require to be able to do this? And the person might say, you know, I'm very courageous. I'm daring. So we write all those things down. Then the person might say, another person might say, you know, when I went to college and I'm dyslectic. And so for me, I mixed the words when I read and it was very, very challenging, but I graduated anyway. So then we asked the group, what are the qualities that this person possessed? So it could be a woman who said I had three miscarriages or Whatever it is, the things they've overcome or access, and by the time we've written about 15 of those on, on the board, we have the person stand in front of us and we say, now what we want you to do is to witness the experience you're about to have. And all you have to do is listen with your body and just breathe. Then the whole group starts talking about what's on the board, like among ourselves. And we say, you know, that is really brave to be able to go to college when you are dyslectic. I can't even possibly understand this. This is amazing. And then, so as the person listened to this, you can see the nervous system, right? Literally, you can see the person changing in front of your eyes. And usually some people will start crying. And some people have like this discomfort to begin with because we don't have an accurate self-assessment. We are biased with fear and shame about who we think we are because that's how we think we keep ourselves safe and that's how we think we're going to improve. So, but the truth is, is that none of that is true. And the truth is that we are absolutely resilient, every single one of us. I mean, if I ask any listener right now, take 10 minutes and do this exercise by yourself, write down all the things you've overcome and write underneath all the qualities that you possess to have overcome that. Give that to a close friend and have them read that back to you and sit there and listen. And you will be blown away by just that experience where your body will go, whoa, whoa, whoa. And the body cannot refuse evidence. The body will refuse a positive affirmation because it's just words. But if what you're saying is backed up by a real life experience that did happen, the body can't refuse it.
the body has to go, oh, this is really true about me. I am this person who graduated from college with dyslexia. It's so, so powerful. And most of us don't understand that we have to come back and build a certain amount of resiliency inside of ourselves to be able to become an observer, right? That's, that's essential because think of it, most people stuck with an addictive behavior, they're like a vehicle with no gas in the car. And people are expecting the, the vehicle to move forward, but there's no gas in the car. So meaning they're just so full of shame and so full of fear, they, they're not even connected with their own sense of resiliency, you know? And we always laugh because I say to people, you know, well, you, you think you're not resilient, but you've been abusing alcohol for 20 years and how much disaster have you created with that? And you think that's not resilient? <laughs> well, I don't know what is. Yeah, so you re- you've created an exercise there where people absolutely see the truth of how awesome that they've, they are and that they've been and then have others reflect that back. That, that'd be very powerful. It's extremely powerful. So readjust, you'd have to readjust your view of yourself. Yeah, and it happens energetically. That's what's so profound. It doesn't happen analytically. Yeah, that's right, because no amount of words of people saying, reporting these things, you know, saying you're this, you're that, it doesn't stick, does it? It doesn't go in. Well, what sticks is the evidence of it. When you say to the person, you went to college and you have dyslexia, the body goes, oh, that's true. So it's not a positive affirmation when you say, wow, you're really brave. You graduated from college with dyslexia. And the body goes, oh, yeah, I did. You're really brave. And the body goes, oh, I guess I am. So it's like, it's not logical. It's, it's that the body is able to recognize the truth through all the experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... That's really powerful. I could, I can really see how that works and how just straight affirmations. I know straight affirmations are not as powerful as when you say the affirmation and imagine in the body what would it feel like for that to, for that affirmation to be true. When you take when that works, but just saying the words doesn't work. And so I can see from just from my experience with that how people reporting, saying what's true back to you. And you know it's absolutely true how powerful that would be. Yeah. And it's actually easier than imagining something. I mean, some of us can imagine and really feel it in our body. But for a lot of people, that's challenging versus coming up with real things in your life. That's not very hard. That's easy. That's right. That's right. What a great exercise. Yeah, it's wonderful. I think everyone listening to this, you know, if there's just one thing to take away from this is to go and do that. Yeah, absolutely. You'll be blown away by the experience. It's, and it'll start teaching you that being vulnerable is amazing. Mm. It's, it's transforming. It's the most freeing thing you can ever do. I really wanted to ask you this, and this is a really good point to ask you. So what, what would your view be of true freedom? So true freedom is the ability to see yourself accurately. It's not about being any different than you are. It's actually the opposite, is to realize that all of me, okay, all of me is welcome. So I've developed such a strong sense of myself. I'll give you an example. I was teaching a workshop where I was, there were people in training and they were people going through the experience in this workshop. And my job was to facilitate the process and teach it to people at the same time. Okay. And I was in the beginning stages at that time, many years ago. And at the end of this weekend, one of the person came up to me and said, you know, JF, I see you. You're absolutely brilliant. And I must tell you, you're the most arrogant person I've ever met. And I look at him and I took a breath and I brought in my witness and I'm breathing and I look at him and I noticed the experience, felt some anxiety, kept breathing. And then I said, oh, I said, are you talking about the time where we were facilitating together and then I took over the process in this way? He goes, yeah. And then I pointed out another one. He goes, yeah. And I said, oh, okay. So you know what? I think you're right. 
I actually notice right now that I believe that I know more than you do. And that's very arrogant for me to, to believe that. And so, and you're giving me a gift right now because I'm noticing that facilitating a process and teaching it is something that I need to improve at. And I see that, you know, yes, I was leading the process. And yes, I could learn to include you more in this process. So what allowed me to be able to be present with him, his anger completely vanished, okay? And why? Because I was open to what he's saying. So to me, this is freedom. Freedom is that, in a nutshell, is that you no longer take anything personally. You just, you're able to see accurately that you have wounds within yourself. Your wounding creates your greatest gifts, and both of them are needed to be healthy. And you can be all of who you are without having to get rid of any part of yourselves. There's nothing broken or wrong or bad about you. So you're really quite fluid with yourself. A hundred percent. You're not trying to deny something or change something or prevent something or hide something. You're just being present with yourself or That's whatever freedom. occurs. That's freedom. So there's no resistance. Correct. Yeah. Yep. That makes sense. So the freedom is in that there is no resistance. Yeah. It just is what we present as. Yeah. It's like I can, I can recognize I'm brilliant and I have some insecurities inside of me that turned into sort of arrogance. Oh, I can see all of that. I can welcome all of that. None of it defines me necessarily as good or bad. It's just, oh, yeah. And, and we all work in progress, every single one of us. But we, we're not able to acknowledge that. We have this fantasy of who we think we should be. It's so brutal. Mm. But I can see how your work is helping people wake up to that there is this fantasy and then, then start to experience themselves, as you said, as we really are without trying to resist that or hide that or change that. I guess you are probably trying to think, well, maybe I could try a different tack next time, but you're not getting down on yourself for aware, becoming aware of that. Yeah, that's wonderful. And um, I think I've learned a lot just, I, mean, I, I love listening to your book, but also I feel like, you know, you've really helped me understand it more. And um, I'm sure everyone who's, who's listening will be, it's a great introduction to, to what you do. And I hope some people, if, if they feel like they want more teaching or from you, that they can find you. We'll put the website below the episode and a link to your book on Amazon as well. So, yeah, I really, really appreciate you spending the time to help everyone who's going to hear this. It's I really think there's a lot of benefit here. Yeah, thank you, Michael. And, and thank you for all the ways that you dedicate your time to support others. We all need to be connected and, and be supported in this way. So it's such a wonderful thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a real learning journey uh, at the same time as, you know, a genuine desire to, to bring to light ways of growing, I guess. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I really would like to stay in touch and and uh, maybe down the track we'll, we'll uh, see how things develop. But no, uh, thank you very much again. And um, I guess we might bring it to a close unless there's anything that you wanted to, to say further. Thank you so much for having me. And the last thing I want to say is just um, to the best of your ability, start developing an ability to be more kind towards yourself because that's really the thing that set me free the most is starting to be aware of the shame-based, fear-based mindset and be able to shed that slowly. And kindness is the way, right? It's an open witnessing process and it's so wonderful. And I hope that uh, that I come in and, and get to visit with you, Michael, in Australia. I've, I've always wanted to go. I've led some uh, seminars in New Zealand, but never made it to Australia. So it would be wonderful to be if you ever are coming, I would love you to contact me and we can get together. And also, I think at some point after COVID, there's probably going to be an opportunity where I travel and uh, I might make a point of going to Hawaii 
not just for the waves, but I'll get to visit you as well. <laughs> Wonderful. We'll go surfing yeah. together. Oh, good. You surf. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, excellent. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's really good to know as well. All right. Well, take care and, and um, I'll, I'll say goodbye for now and uh, thank you again. Wonderful. Wonderful.